I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. Artist and writer Carmen Weinunt is my guest on the show today. Just last weekend, a piece of Carmen's, a portrait in multiple images of Toni Morrison was featured on the last New York Times magazine cover of the decade. The culmination of an eventful past couple of years for Weinunt, she released two new books, Notes on Fundamental Joy with Printed Matter and My Birth with SPBH Editions. That book accompanied her show of the same name in MoMA's new photography in 2018. In that powerful installation, she used two facing walls to tape up over 2,000 found photographs of women giving birth. Wyant was born in San Francisco, studied at UCLA and the California College of the Arts, and now lives in Columbus, Ohio, with her husband artist Luke Stettner and their two sons, Carlo and Rafa. She's the Roy Lichtenstein Chair of Studio Art at Ohio State University, where she teaches as well. We got together in Toronto, and I was curious about what her studio back home looked like. I've never been one to keep a clean studio, in part because I don't know that I'm capable of that. Like, it's just not my tendency. Yeah. Um, and in part because I understand that messiness to be, uh, to contribute towards the greater end you know mm-hmm. like i i don't really even work on tables i mean i work across the floor which is probably terrible for my back <laughs> and i spread images out and i walk on them and i sort of see what accidents happen like what kinds of images come in contact with what other kind you know other kinds of images and i think that if i kept them in like really tidy drawers or something then that, you know, those accidents or those sort of points of friction wouldn't be made possible. So just in terms of like what the studio is like to enter into, Mm -hmm. it's chaos. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of my actual sort of studio protocols, um, those have really shifted since I've had children. So as you ask about my studio life, I'm thinking about my former studio life um, in which, you know, I was in the studio for nine, 10 hours a day, you know, um, making things and failing and having accidents and then having that accident yield something, you know, just like working, 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 like bringing my body in contact with the material. Um, There wasn't much for planning to be had. Now that I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old that and a full-time job, um, that way of working is not really possible for me. And I really long for it, to tell you the truth. Like I To just be able to go into the studio and just play around and work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is my preferred way of working. I mean, that's the only way of working that I really know how to do. Yeah. Um, and so now, I've, to tell you the truth, I've become more of a uh, sort of a project manager, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is interesting. It's like, you know, it's equally vital way to work, um, but... In some ways, I've sort of become an administrator of my creative practice, and I really am aching lately to um, get back in the studio in a more dedicated way, but I also have to incorporate the terms of my life, you know, mm-hmm. into the way that I work. What do you actually want to get back to? Like, what's the actual work? Right. Well, <laughs> it's hard to answer that question. I mean, I yeah. it, it's different for different projects, mm-hmm. but I don't often enter into work with um, anything but a loose frame, Mm -hmm. you know, a sort of a loosely preconceived idea of like 
the idea of, you know, injury and testimony or something, you mm -hmm. know, and that I've been collecting maybe images that seem like they might tend to that, you know, and I'm going to start moving them around on the table and I happen to have this like fabric dye and I'm going to try to dye some of them to see how well they saturate and then like some accident happens where they crystallize and so then I you know it's like then I can use that as a kind of sandpaper right like it's sort of like one um one sort of problem in some way leads to another mm -hmm. um and I, I mentioned sort of phrase earlier that I think about often which is bringing my own body in contact with the work um I feel as though you know, there's a kind of, I don't know, I hate to use this word, but like an instinct, right? Like a, um, a kind of curiosity that my, that I can be responsive to that I can't necessarily anticipate or when I do anticipate it, it feels more stale. Mm -hmm. Um, which maybe in part, I think is stemmed from my own history as a long competitive long distance runner which I did for a decade this like idea of like you just keep bringing your body into the equation mm -hmm. you know like you keep um you sort of engage with repetition you engage with boredom you engage with failure and like eventually with a kind of ecstasy and it's all you know it's it all moves through your body mm -hmm. and so that's always how I've known studio life too and so as you can imagine this new way of working is thereby like a big shift for me I came across something really interesting uh, in, in a talk you gave that I want to read. You said, athletes spend only rare moments in competition. Athletes spend 99% of their time devoted to a torrent of self-regulation. What is the nature of this practice? Can it exist for its own sake? And what trace does it leave? Athletic practice not only denies itself of an audience, but the binary terms of winning and losing. It is composed of thousands of private hours repeating often grueling tasks to build strength, skill, and endurance. Unlike during competition, where an athlete confronts an opponent in practice, the athlete confronts their own inadequacies in an attempt to patch, strengthen, move forward, never quite reach fully realized potential. Physically, psychologically, as any athlete will attest, a life in sport is less involved with the big game than with infinite rehearsal. There's a sentiment in this that relates to art making. I mean, I know you said it, but I'm curious how you feel about it. There, maybe there's a sentiment in it that has to do with doing the actual work itself is the reward of being an artist. Is that a... Yeah, definitely. I think that's a large part of it. I'm yeah. actually... Um, that essay that you just quoted ended up in a lot of ways becoming this book project that I'm working on, which is to say like a full-length <laughs> book of text, not an artist book, although there will be images, which I've been working on, God, for about two and a half years. It's been stalled by each of my pregnancies and births, but I'm, I sort of keep returning to it. And the idea underwriting that book um, is that there is a kind of shared practice between athletic life and creative life. And in fact, when I moved into creative life, which is to say when I became a visual artist, um, I was at, in some ways, like the peak of my athletic life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so when people kept using this word practice, 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 right, that was like 2001, 2002, um, when it was sort of just starting to come into vogue. I felt like, what the fuck are they talking about? You know, like <laughs> practice for me would existed, like occupied a different universe, you know, it was athletic practice. Mm -hmm. um, and for so long, I tried to kind of partition and compartmentalize those 
parts of my life, right? Those, those parts of myself, I think because um, I was the only, I was a student at UCLA at the time and I was, I was the only artist that I knew who was an athlete and I was afraid that would sort of compromise me in the eyes of my, you know, artist cohort that like I wouldn't be considered intellectual because I lived a life of the body. Um, and so it took me a really long time, in fact, to come around to the idea that they had something to offer each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so often, I can go on about this, so I'll keep it short, but <laughs> so often I think that um, when people become frustrated with the, this word, practice, it's because it's equated to professional practice. Like, who practices, of course, if not doctors, dentists, lawyers, right? It's like white-collar accredited work, mm -hmm. um, which so more and more you know, artists do and perform. But I saw this other kind of opening up um, to get work my way around to your question um, from my life in athletic practice, which was all those things that you described, right? It's sort of like the private turning over and over and over, you know, and um, the kind of pulling apart, you know, of your body in some literal and physiological sense in order to um, quite literally, again, become stronger. And so I understood some parallel between those things, and that's really what the book is about, um, examining all the sort of private work that we do, right, and how boring it is mm -hmm. and how much failure there, there is inside of it and how, in a lot of ways, that is the interesting project, right? Like, that, that is the, um, the depth of our work, not necessarily like the climax, which is to say the big exhibition or something in which everything is glossy and resolved. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, you end up spending so much more time in that practice than the actual big event in itself that it almost has to hold that kind of meaning. You were just included in new photography at MoMA. How did that feel for you? Did your feelings about the practice and the whole process of it all kind of hold up to that? Well, I've if, tried. I don't know how sense, successful yeah. I always am, but I have tried um, to, in a lot of ways manifest the um, the sort of unreliableness of the studio or the energy of the studio, mm -hmm. you know, to transmute that into the work and make it vibrate, you yeah. know. For so long, my studio was the way that I described, right? Like, it has always been this way, sort of chaotic and frenzied. Um, and then I would, like, make these polished objects to go live in the world because that is what art looks like, you know, sort of capital A art looks like. Um, and... At some point, I just got so um, fucking bored with that, <laughs> and I and like I looked up quite literally at my studio walls, and I thought like, if this is the project, what does it mean to transmute this project into the world? You know, like um, how can I sort of keep the vulnerability of this or its like its unfixedness? you know, um, in the gallery space hmm. and like where better to do that than MoMA, you know, hmm. a place where, like, it, you know, the most rarefied of kind of gallery contexts to make something that wasn't in a frame, to make something that was volatile in terms of its archivalness, to make something, you know, that was taped to the wall and like fluttering when people walk by, um, to make something that can never be installed the same way twice. So that to me is, um, like, that's the heat of the studio, you hmm. know? Must have taken a lot of courage to do that. I mean, here you are, you have an opportunity to present work in, you know, in the greatest institution of all. And to make that decision feels pretty vulnerable to me. It was in some ways. I tried to talk myself out of it. And to mm -hmm. her credit, the curator, Lucy Gallen, talked me back into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I mean, you know, she was incredibly open and supportive, but um, she had seen a couple of different installations that I had done of a similar nature. Um, and I think really, you know, believed, believed in them. Um, so I felt like I had partnership, mm-hmm. you know, that's not to say that when it started to go up on the wall, I wasn't nervous, not only because of the nature of the work. I was actually one of the last people to install and I was looking around and seeing all these like big, beautiful, glossy framed photographs. So already, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel vulnerable and then to boot, right. There's pictures of vaginas mm-hmm. like splitting open and passing life. So um, it's sort of a, a kind of double vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Let's go back even a little bit earlier. You were talking about, you know, you're an athlete and you became an artist. You got into photography. Your practice has evolved into one where you deal a lot with with archival photos and found photos. Was that interest always there? Did you did, did the original interest in photography start with wanting to make your own photos? Yes and no. Um, I, you know, I look back to my teenage bedroom and I can, of course, understand retrospectively the impulse intact. I mean, my walls were covered beyond the extent of a normal childhood bedroom, right? That has like a couple of posters. I mean, you couldn't see the walls. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just keep layering and layering and layering. I have no pictures of this and I really regret that. I have the same feeling. It's like, so, like you just want to see what your bedroom looked like and yeah. what was on the walls. And it was such a, a dedicated project for me. You know, I started it when I was maybe like in seventh or eighth grade. Yeah. And I went all the way through high school. Yeah. And then um, when I left, my parents took it down or they moved shortly thereafter and took it down. And I never, of course, thought to document it. And I really have such deep-seated regret now. But mm-hmm. to answer your question, I, that impulse to live inside of a world of pictures um, I think belonged to me from the very beginning mm-hmm. or I ascribed to it from the very beginning. Um, but when I went to UCLA, I became, I became very interested in making my own pictures. Um, I didn't necessarily see so much of a distinction. I took a class with Kathy Opie, which, you know, like radically opened up my imagination to the possibilities of photography. And it was, you know, um, that interest was seated in my, life as an athlete so I was sneaking my camera to our events you know despite the fact that my coach had sort of out you know outlawed it and taking photographs of my teammates and other people who you know strangers to me who had passed the finish line and sort of crumbled you know were sort of like couldn't control their bodies anymore um which again sort of retrospectively I think has something to do with the project you know kind of like um both exiting your body and entering into feeling so deeply. I mean, they were bad pictures, but like that was my impulse. And Kathy encouraged me to um, take stock of my own life and to take it seriously, you know, of my own experiences, which was meaningful. And then I eventually, I think I, I just started, I started taking pictures of other people's pictures. And then I finally realized that um, that was, you know, where my interest lay. And I never took another picture. You just put the camera down. Yeah. You know, I actually recently for this portfolio for Aperture um, revisited these photographs I had made in Kathy's class when I was 19 years old, when I was learning how to use a large format camera. Mm-hmm. And I'd save these prints, you know, these like 16 by 20 prints all these years. And I incorporated them in the piece. And it did give me like a tinge of longing. Um 
I don't rule out the possibility of making my own pictures uh, again, but it's sort of like running. It's like these things that I did in such a dedicated way and then one day I stopped doing and I actually felt some relief around. Mm -hmm. You've kind of alluded to a little bit talking about, you know, that experience of your childhood bedroom, but I'm curious about what you feel your relationship to photography is today or what it's become. I feel distrustful of a lot of photographs, Hmm. which is part of the reason I think I don't make them anymore. Um, How so? I find them too beautiful, Mm -hmm. too sanitized, Mm -hmm. too familiar. Um, Not surprised enough? Yeah, I mean, they, they, it's maybe it becomes hard to surprise through photography because they start to reiterate each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I was telling you last night how, you know, when I was in grad school, how I was making pictures of my parents and I used to tell my mother like, okay, look a little, look a little bit more sad, right? Mm -hmm. Like this idea that I wanted to project a kind of moodiness that I understood as serious, you know, I wanted to create a kind of seductiveness of the picture, which I could do through underexposure or whatever, right? Like, um, I felt like there was sort of, I had these tools, um, which, you know, this limited number of tools, which we all have as photographers and, um, I just grew suspicious of them, you know, as, um, as sort of conveyors of whatever, of beauty, of truth, you know, of metaphor. Um, it seemed as though, you know, this is not to, <laughs> this is not to dictate how other people should work. Yeah. All I can speak for is sort of my own impulses, you know, and I felt like there was something more unwieldy and more uncomplicated and more, excuse me, more complicated to be had um, in dealing with the photographs of other people. Is that the kind of work that continues to excite you, like in work that you come across? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> Although, I mean, I, of course, have my own biases and no, proclivities. No, but I'm curious about your you own know? biases. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. that's what I'm I interested mean, in. It's, it's, I, of course, I'm, I do love photography, and I'm troubled by photography, yeah. you know? But yes, of course, like, that means a lot of different things. It means that, like, I love, say, like, Lee Ladere's work, you mm-hmm. know? But it also means that I look for those kinds of instincts across other ways of working, you know? Like the writers that, I, you know, like the reason that I gravitated towards like Gertrude Stein and the language poets or something, you mm-hmm. know, was because I understood a similar impulse of like pulling apart, borrowing, repeating. So if anything, I feel like I don't look at a lot of contemporary photography or art necessarily. I, I find my own tendencies are oftentimes more echoed in film or in writing. That's where you spend most of your time. Like the, the, that's where you pull most from. Filming. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I spend most of my time changing diapers, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, I mean, that's the most meaningful for me. Yeah. And, you know, I find that, you know, teaching in a, in a department of art, you know, our references can be rather limited and myopic, you know? So, like, when I ask students what is feeding them, they talk about, like, a, a very limited number of photographers or painters or whatever that are working the way that they are. Um, and when I encourage them to look at a, like, a poet or a filmmaker, they look at me um, like I am out of my mind, mm-hmm. you know? So I think this, I mean, for me at least, this kind of expansive practice just proves a little bit more generative. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about your exhibition at the MoMA exhibition. My birth at MoMA is basically comprised of all found photos that basically line two walls that you walk through. When you 
put that many images to interact with together. I mean, of course, everyone's experience is very subjective, but how do you want someone to encounter that work? Do you have a feeling that you want to try and, and evoke in people in it? Yeah, I mean, um, the idea, the sort of, you know, underlying idea is that the work be evocative. But what that means to different people yeah. is quite different. Um, you know, I, I no longer live in New York, so I couldn't spy on people the way that I wanted to. But on the two occasions that I did go back to the show in which it was open, I did kind of just like loiter around and try to watch people, mm -hmm. you know, behave with the work. Ar Arbus used to do that, apparently. Oh, she is that right? Around, yeah, she used to hang around the exhibition. Right, nothing creepy yeah. at all about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, what was amazing, I will say, about the work that I didn't necessarily anticipate... Um, this sounds like a sort of put on thing to say, but it's really true is the way that people activated it, you know, um, mm -hmm. I didn't think much about that. Embarrassingly enough, when I was making the work, I was just sort of focused on bringing it together. And, um, of course the thing that amazed me the most is that people stayed inside of it, you know, in part because it was a small gallery that you had to pass through one, um, sort of there were, there were sort of two large galleries that constituted the exhibition and then this small passageway between, and that's where my work was. And so um, that meant it was really populated. And it also meant, because of the nature of the work, I think that people, people stayed with the trouble, you know? I mean, it, that to me was remarkable because we have um, such deeply ingrained sort of systems of moving through work, right, mm -hmm. in, in galleries or museums. It's like... 10 seconds, 12 seconds next, right? Like we mm -hmm. flow in a certain order. Um, and all of that felt completely disregarded. And there were people who stayed in there, you know, I was maybe there for 45 minutes and there was one woman who was there the entire length of that time and was still in there when I left. So that was meaningful to me. And then of course it was meaningful to see different people of different ages and different genders coming into the contact in contact with the work in different ways. And probably most of all, seeing an older set of women um not to discriminate here the work is for whomever the you know the work is for but mm -hmm. um you know there's a dedicated demographic of women for whom in the states at least for whom um birth is a sort of experience of denial refusal shame invisibility you know where either they were sedated um or they were told you know basically the implication was that they should never speak about it again or that it was sort of like repulsive right um or that their husbands weren't there or um you know what or that they were cut open and they didn't receive the proper you know sort of whatever psychological or physiological care and so um my feeling is that that's a deeply buried kind of experience to have undergone and to witness it then surfaced and to a certain extent celebrated, right? Made valid, understood as important in the sort of hallowed space that is the MoMA. Um, that wasn't that kind of interaction between those people and that work to me was, um, it was moving. Did you start making it while you were pregnant? Yes. Had given birth. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So was... I had uh, Lucy, the curator, approached me about creating some sort of installation. Yeah. When I was about three months pregnant with my second son. With your second son. So I already had I had a child at that point who was about a year, a little over a year old. So I worked steadily on the book project and on the installation until I was about 
eight and a half months pregnant. Hmm. Was making the work, um, did it resolve any insecurities you felt about not being able to see enough of that or, or, or relate to other women's That is a complicated question. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, in some ways, I set out to make the work because I had undergone the experience of birth, which was full of many different sensations, um, pain among them, although not only. And I was desperate to sort of understand that experience, right? To like, um, to come to terms with it in some way through the tools at my disposal that are, you know, photographs, which are images, and to sort of, um, you know, insist on that question being asked over and over again, you know, the question of whether or not photography itself, um, you know, can be a political agent, right? Can, can convey sensate experience. And also to sort of come up against the problem of its failure to do so, right? Like no matter how many times I insist on the image of birth, nothing will actually touch that sensation, you know? So there were these kind of dual and conflictual problems inside of that. Um, it was useful for me. You know, it was a useful exercise um, to try to understand my own experience in that way, you know, through the collection and sort of aggregation of so many other women undergoing similar postures mm -hmm. and experiences. Um, but ultimately, I'll just say briefly that as I became more and more pregnant and as I prepared to give birth again, I had to stop working with the pictures because it became too intense for me, frankly, um, to contend with them on an hourly basis. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Carmen Winant that we recorded in Toronto. Follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast or visit us at magichourpodcast.org to see more of Carmen's work and to find out more information about the show. 
you know, I had, um, I had these, uh, the f- albums that you describe, I had discovered when I was a teenager and they had entered my work in different ways over the years. I had made drawings of them. I had rephotographed them. So in some ways, I think they were the beginning of everything without me even knowing it, right? Like this way that we kind of circle back to whatever the objects that have touched us. Um, so I really am so grateful to, I mean, my mother for having those photographs made initially and then sharing them with me, you know, there's such profound generosity in both of those acts. Um, And to return to your original question, I think I always had the idea that that would feature as a part of the book project. And I don't think that I knew that it would be the book project, right? That that would sort of be the rhythm or the kind of the spine of the book. Um, and only through working with Bruno over the course of many months uh, did we both really kind of come to understand that that was the case. And still my impulses were sort of to like to be additive were, were taking over, right? I was trying to like throw more and more images into the book and Bruno had to keep saying like, no, no, you have to keep, you have to peel these back, right? Because in fact, as you say, like that rhyming um, is, you know, that's the tension of the book. Um, that's like the sort of the beating heart of the book and, and to just, um, you know, kind of default <laughs> to your tendency um, to have a thousand pictures in this book is, is not actually the right move here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, a, that was a deep learning experience for me and one that I try to propel forward. So those image combinations might be the beating heart of the book, but I feel like there's two text components that are almost equally as moving and powerful and especially in the way that they work with the image and text. I wonder if you could talk about how you developed that writing and maybe the tone in which you wanted it to have. I mean, I have to say, it really reminded me a lot of Moira Davies' writing, hmm. which... Someone I, I greatly admire. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a quality in her writing as well as yours that feels so approachable in a way, hmm. but is actually very complex and profound in terms of what it's dealing with so the first component of writing is a list of questions that you ask and the second part are just almost um little thoughts or well i don't know how would you describe them even well i wrote the text as an essay yeah um and you know the with the questions themselves sort of embedded in the essay and then we kind of pulled the essay apart into these different constituent paragraphs which were still to be read as a kind of in a narrative sequence um and as such they lived both as a kind of coherent essay and also as pieces throughout mm-hmm. i'm happy to talk about the writing process or yeah i'm curious yeah um Well, I've always been, I don't even want to say that I've been a writer. I've always considered writing a part of my art life and work and practice, you know, an inquest. So those things for me were truly uh, not so easy to pull apart, you know. Um, It was a question of like, well, what is the right tool to ask these questions? Is it making a picture? Is it finding a picture? Is it writing about a picture? You know, Um, and... For me, it's not so useful to partition those things, but I have found them, to be perfectly honest, difficult to entangle in the way that I always want inside of like what becomes a finished project, you know? Um, 
I always worry that the language might read as too heavy-handed or sort of overly didactic. Um, I never want the language to act as a sort of explanation, right? So this project was really meaningful for me because Bruno and Brian, both the, d- the designer, who's really brilliant, um, helped me conceive of a manner in which they could be, uh, you know, laced together um, so that one didn't sort of behave as the description for another, but rather they were sort of equal and complementary parts of the whole. Right. I'm curious what, um, I mean, your work has a, um, has a great feminist agenda. What does feminism mean to you? I know in, like, in other interviews you've talked about your mom and how she was a radical feminist and you kind of grew up around it, but you didn't necessarily relate to a lot of what earlier generations subscribe to. I'm curious what being a feminist means to you today. <laughs> that is also a very big question. <laughs> Not possibly answerable in just a few minutes. Um, or Okay, so maybe, maybe let me narrow it down. What was it that bothered you about early waves of feminism that you didn't relate to? I actually do relate in a profound <laughs> way to earlier waves of feminism. And I think that puts me at odds with a lot of contemporary feminists. Okay, really? Yeah, um, that's not to say, you know, movements evolve and change and revolt against themselves, you know. Um, axioms change. I mean, I think that that is um, sort of the, the strength and the effect, right, of something like feminism. So that's not to say that I wanted to remain static in time. Um, but I have become interested... Lately, I mean, in my life and in my work, in um, the power of radical optimism, as I see it, you know, which in some ways belong to this generation before me, we now call second wave feminists, um, who were once called, you know, once called women's liberation. Um, This idea that, in fact, we have to be able to, I mean, it sounds so fundamental and obvious, but we have to be able to, in fact, imagine a world different than the one that we occupy, you know? And when I teach feminism now to students, you know, the art movement, the politics, ideology, the history, whatever, um, and I ask them, can you imagine living in a world outside of patriarchy? They look at me like they don't understand the premise of the question, Hmm. right? And I think that that is dangerous. It doesn't really answer your question about what I subscribe to between ways, although I think it points to it. Um... There, there is something so powerful and so effective about being able to imagine world building, right? Being able to imagine a life outside of patriarchal structures, capitalism included. And if you can't fucking imagine it, then that's a problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, that means that like optimism itself in a certain way has been foreclosed. And so when I look back to yes, what we're called the radical feminists, I understand not only the power of organizing and, you know, sort of um, a collective agenda, which we no longer share, right? There's certainly a much more, there's a sense of uh, feminism being much more kind of fragmentary and individuated. Um, I I also sort of look back with the idea that, you know, they possess that kind of imagination. They possess that kind of optimism and that in and of itself is radical. What does that optimism mean to you today? I mean, what does that that imagination consist of? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because I'm, t- I'm uh, when I get back to Columbus in a couple of days, I'm starting uh, to teach this summer intensive class for grad for graduate students, 
at Ohio State where I teach on contemporary feminism. Hmm. Um, and so as a result, I mean, we're here in Toronto and we're doing all these events and in between them, I'm like frantically trying to finish my reading. And um, and so I've been thinking, I mean, I've, I've been reading a lot about, um, in particular, younger feminists or feminists of my generation sort of looking back, looking backwards and sort of trying to glean from, you know, the generation that came before. Um, and... Um, and thinking about, frankly, like what there what there is to be gained, you know, from doing that, and what I see happening over and over is um, they're kind of longing for um, a commitment to, again, like not just a feminist life, but in fact, a new world, right? Like to be a feminist is to according to these feminists, like not compromise, you know, not sort of tidy up within the master's house, but like burn the master's house down, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And it's interesting to see. I mean, I think we are in a moment where there are some younger feminists who are sort of thinking about what that charge could mean now. Hmm. And I I count myself as one. I feel like you must be such a great teacher. I mean, you're so passionate and you have so much energy. (laughs) No, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Well, you know, uh, well, thank you. First of all, yeah. I mean, I feel I was reading this um, book that I recommend to everyone. I, I made mention of it yesterday um, by Sarah Ahmed. It's A H M E D. She's a very famous feminist, the, sort of writer and theoretician. And she wrote a book last year called How to Live a Feminist Life. Um, and she said she says in the introduction to the book something along the lines of like. When did feminists? When did feminism find you? You know, like at what moment did you become a feminist? Was it when? At what moment did feminism speak to you? At what moment did feminism speak you? And I thought, like, oh, holy hell! <laughs> you know, like there was something in that writing that was so persuasive, right? Where she, where she was putting her finger um, on this idea that it's not just. Um, a sort of like ideology outside of ourselves that we subscribe to, right? That it actually enters our bodies, right? Um, and becomes the becomes the sort of air that we breathe, uh, you know, the words that come out of our mouth. Um, that to me was profound and it was familiar. I'm curious about your, a little more about your upbringing and, and your mom, what she was like or what she is like. Because yeah. you kind of grew up around it. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I would say both my parents are feminists. You know, my parents were um, kind of children of the new left, as we say in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, what do they do? My father is a sociologist and a race theoretician. Hmm. And my mother works in international reproductive women's health. Wow. So I am in some ways <laughs> a kind of a brainchild of the two of them. Uh-huh. Um, and I have two siblings, and my brother's in labor history, um, <laughs> and my sister studies poetry. Wow. Um, and so, you know, we are, of course, the kind of beneficiaries of our parents' intellectual, you know, inheritance. And so I feel really grateful to have grown up around that, you know. And there was never a sense of, you know, prescription. I never felt like I was kind of being lectured to or told what politics I should conform my life around. You know, it's more as these things go, more a sense of the kind of climate that you grow up inside of, right? Um, what is given value, what's talked about at the dinner table, you know? Um, 
it's not like there wasn't conflict in the family or there wasn't rebelliousness or strife. But um, I, yeah, retrospectively, I feel really lucky, you know, to have um, grown up inside a consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I think often about what that means to imbue consciousness in children now that I have two of my own and not only that but two young boys Hmm. do you feel very inspired by your upbringing is that something you want to kind of uh, do you want them to have a similar kind of experience that you had in some ways I mean you know it changes across you know time and context um but yes I mean I would like for them to feel a sense of responsibility towards their world. Mm -hmm. You know, I would like for them to sort of um, have a political consciousness to understand these things that we talk about regarding, you know, um, privilege, entitlement, you know, refusal. I I feel not, I don't always know how to do that, but, you know, I I think about it, certainly. Mm -hmm. What are you working on now? I'm working on a couple of different projects. The thing that's sort of the nearest in time is this book that I'm working on, well, the really that I've completed with Print and Matter. And that is a book that focuses on um, these lesbian separatist, uh, lesbian feminist separatist communes wow. in the States. And uh, communes that produced an you know, enormous number of photographs that now live in personal archives, institutional archives. So my job in creating that book in a lot of ways was um as a curator you know to make sort of editorial decisions about how that work can live in the world and not to sort of take credit necessarily for the photographs all the photographs you know have a copyright and have you know an author's name attached to them um so it's a really different kind of project and i contributed a text to that book and the writer and photographer ariel goldberg also contributed a text um they're a really interesting person um, so I'm really excited about being able, frankly, to kind of play out these some of these ideas that we're talking about, right? Like, what does it actually look like to live in a world without threat? What does it actually look like to leave patriarchy behind, right? To leave capitalism behind. Like, what does a free body look like, you know? Um, here it was made manifest and that's powerful and you know it's full of cracks right like they didn't survive very long and um people left and they got you know jealous or they ran out of money or whatever the case may be but there's this sort of um moment in historical time documented thoroughly right about this experiment this radical experiment and so um, my job is really to kind of shine some light on you know the images that already exist Hmm. Can't wait to see it. You and me both. (laughs) (laughs) Carmen, thanks so much for getting together. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Jordan. That was my conversation with Carmen Wynant that we recorded in Toronto. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and it was edited by Crystal Duhame. Original music in this episode by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. If you have a sec, give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show and we'd really appreciate it. Happy New Year from Montreal and see you next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.